Welcome to the podcast M&A War Stories. You're joined by your hosts, Robert Heaton and Toby Tester. Each week, we walk through M&A projects where we've been involved in the course of our careers, unpacking the good, the bad, and the ugly. Our purpose in doing this is to leave you, the listener, with valuable lessons and experiences that you can use in your own M&A projects. So without wasting any more time, let's get this podcast underway. Hi, Toby. How are you? Good, good, Robert. Hi, how are you down in Melbourne? Oh, we're good, actually. Blue skies and sunshine. It's horrendous rain in most of the rest of the country. Oh, you're right there. But some Sydney, <laughs> but the poor old Queenslanders are copying a big time. I think it's worse than the floods they had 10 years ago in 2011, I think it was. Yeah, quite you know, possibly. Um, yeah, uh, really we've, bad. We've escaped it, but I'll yeah. hold my breath because it could be famous last words. Who knows? Last year, we talked about the HP autonomy acquisition, and it was one of the absolute classic corporate disasters of its time. It was, indeed. Um, and of course, my good old former colleague, Leo Apotheker, was the CEO of HP at the time when that acquisition was made. We thought there was so much more going on in that, it's worth revisiting. I think so. I think so. So, so yeah. why don't you kick us off? Yeah, I, I will, Robbie, because I have to be honest, we've done some pretty darn good uh, podcasts, but this one, I think we did last year, was so darn good, it's really worth visiting and get the very latest on where we're at because it's still going on. The amazing thing about this, this was a deal that happened, what, over 10 years ago? And I tell you oh. what, it's still heading the headlines now. It actually kicked off in 2011 when Apotheker and Mike Lynch agreed to, to cut a deal mm. on the acquisition of autonomy. And Don't by the way, <laughs> for, the, for the record, I know Leo because he was one of the senior executives of SAP, and I yep. had a working relationship with him because he was overseeing one of the areas that I was responsible for. So that was the yep. background to it. But I mean, this is also classic. He goes and pays a 60% premium over market valuation for the company back in 2011. The funny thing about all of this, Robert, is it's like that that TV program, Air Crash, Air Crash Investigations. It's like one thing happens, it goes, another thing goes wrong, another thing goes and it all culminates in a complete disaster and probably yep. one of the biggest disasters and the most value-destroying deals in the history of corporate America. I would, I would agree. And one of the things about this one, and I know you're going to talk about this, so I won't yeah. steal your thunder, yeah. is that this actually was one of the few major corporate um, disasters that's resulted in criminal prosecution. It is. And the funny thing is, and we'll get onto this, is actually this is still happening. This is news yeah, now. It's not news 10 years ago. Let, yep. let me let me just sort of set the scene about this, and then we can yeah, talk go about it. it a bit further. Let's just look at all the things that conspired in this disaster with this deal. One, you had a CEO desperate to make a deal and rush the process. That's your friend, Leo. Yep. Yep. <laughs> you had two diametric, I mean, they couldn't be more different, the cultures. One was a large, unwieldy, bureaucratic uh, company, as in Hewlett Packard. Yeah. And then another one was your very aggressive, in your face software firm, big on personality, entrepreneurship, and dare I say, suspect sales practices. Then you had yep. a board, an HP board, who is several new people with limited time to focus on the deal. They just basically didn't have time. I mean, you know. I think for the record, yeah, and I again coming back to knowing Leo. Yeah, 
Leo would have just railroaded this through. All right. <laughs> well, that's what he did. You know, the board and- would have just been taken hostage and it would have been... Yeah. Then you had on top of this a chief financial officer screamed out, "Don't do the deal! Don't do the deal!" That's right. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Roundly ignored. In actual fact, she went out so much and saying, "Don't do this deal," in the board. She thought she was going to get sacked. That's right. I remember. Yeah. She thought, "Wow," because she was so adamant that this was so wrong. The deal, and boy, was she right. And um, a due diligence process that we'd had it had. Basically, an over-reliance on a set of accounts, very limited financial transparency. Well, there, and, was, a quote, there was a quote somewhere, it was a rumour, yeah. that the due diligence for this deal had resulted in just six hours of conference calls. <laughs> well, there you go. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know, but um, you can say that the due diligence was rushed. And of course, as you said, an earlier point you said, Rob, was that the uh, the valuation was very optimistic indeed, way above market expectations. I, I can't understand that. That is, yeah. I mean, we, we'll never know the answer, but yeah. that is not, yeah. I would say, Leo. Yeah, yeah. That's not his true character. Mm, interesting. So what, what can we say about this? I mean, we've, sort of, we've done a bit of context. We, I think we all understand who Hewlett-Packard is. You know, it's a... Yeah. Large company, and going back in time, a bit of a dinosaur, large hardware company well, in a software world, I should say. Yeah, and um, I just want to position one thing on this as yeah. well as a sort of a time stamp. Leo arrived in HP in mm-hmm. 2010 and almost immediately launches off on the acquisition of autonomy. The deal got signed in August 2011, and a month later, HP board fired Leo. So he's now gone. The ink's only just dry on the acquisition and Leo's gone. That's when Meg Whitman walked in. That's right. Yes, Meg Whitman indeed. Yeah, as the, as the new CEO of HP. And it was shortly after that, not Meg, but I think, I think you correct me if I'm wrong, yeah. HP's accounting people hmm. that started waving the warning flag about autonomy's accounting practices. Yes, yes. So, of course, the problem is that this was all after the deal was signed. It was all too late. So it was basically a train crash waiting to happen. Yeah, and the thing is, again, coming back to the fact this has turned into a criminal prosecution, Mm. I mean, this isn't just dodgy accounting at the end of an occasional quarter. This is systematic. Maybe, maybe, Rob, just explain, let's, you know, just for the listeners, explain what it is that actually that autonomy was actually up to. What were they doing inflating these for their financial? So in the software industry, particularly mm. in a hardware sense, what you do mm. is you manufacture your hardware and you ship it to your distributors, mm. right? So it's inventory, still inventory. And then your distributors then sell it on to customers or whatever, Mm. and a sale gets recorded. What Autonomy were doing was, because the software industry is quarterly driven and Wall Street are very attuned to quarterly performance, Mm. Autonomy were counting the movement to their distributors at sales revenue, and it clearly wasn't wasn't sales revenue at all. Yeah, I remember it's interesting. HP said that it was willful effort to inflate the underlying financial metrics of the company yeah. that in order to mislead. And that's what yeah. they said. Yeah. It was basically widespread, systematic, false accounting, according well, to Hewlett-Packard. 
Yeah, it is. So you've got two warehouses. Mm. If, if you and I are in business and you're a wholesale distributor and I move inventory out of my warehouse and store it in your warehouse, mm. it's still my inventory. I haven't sold it to you. There's no money transaction taken mm. place. Yeah. But if I claim it as revenue, if I go, oh, okay, that's worth 35 million or whatever the figure may be, and claim that as revenue, right? I'm pulling the wool over the eyes of my investors who think that the company is doing fantastic performance, <laughs> well above everybody else who's doing the right thing. And that was part of what you know Autonomy were doing. Now, Mike Lynch, the CEO of Autonomy, would say, well, there was no wrongdoing. He said he told that, look, this is the way things are done in the UK. And it's just simply a difference between the UK and the US accounting systems. And he said that there was no fraud. And the real story is that Hewlett Packard is simply not very good at acquisitions and it botched the whole exercise and is merely seeking to blame others. Well, that can be unpacked really, really quickly because if that were the case, then there would not be any criminal prosecutions proceedings because that's <laughs> you're simply complying with UK accounting law. But to, to an extent, part of that statement's true. Yeah. So again, coming back to the argument of two warehouses and a distributor, ship a million dollars of goods to your warehouse as my distributor, and I send you a bill for that million dollars, right? that's a different mm. matter. I've sold it to you. And what you do with it after that and how you unsell it is entirely up to you. But if all I'm doing is moving that inventory closer to the customer, there's no financial transaction taking place at all. That's right. That's right. But that's probably, that's what they're doing. That's what they were doing. They Mm -hmm. were claiming it as a sales transaction when all they were doing was moving the inventory out of one spot into another. I should say that as soon after the transaction was done, Mm -hmm. Hewlett-Packard announced it had to take a nearly a $9 billion accounting charge, 80% of the value. And that was just after, what, eight months, nine months? It was actually in May 2012. Hmm. There was a 27,000 people layoff announced. Wow. Wow. Right? To reduce costs. Wow. And by the way, Mike Lynch was one of those 27,000. He got (laughs) exited out of the business. And in November that year, 2012, there was an $8.8 billion impairment write-off, five and a half billion of which was towards these serious accounting improprieties. One of the other things, of course, is there's so much fallout from this. Of course, Deloitte's, who audited the autonomy at that time, was fined 15 million pounds for its own audit failures. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing against the big four. Yeah. And they do a good job, generally speaking. But I've long been convinced that in the large corporate world, there are mm. some senior partners making serious money by almost rubber stamping yep. annual returns and financial declarations with, mm. with, with very little oversight mm. of how the business has been performing. But there you go. Yeah, as you say, they got, they got whacked as well for yeah. essentially being asleep at the wheel. Indeed, indeed. We might as well try and bring it right up to date. I've made a couple of few notes here. And of course, one of the big things that happened, and this has been upheld, just upheld, but back in 2018, the chief financial officer of autonomy was charged 14 counts of wire fraud 
And he went to prison for five years. He appealed. His appeal was unsuccessful. And that only just happened literally about a month ago. That was the chief financial officer. And the very latest on Mike Lynch is who's been fighting hard against extradition. That's right. They have approved for him to be extradited to the United States to face criminal fraud charges for inflating figures. And that was just as of last month. Yeah. So he's... He's heading for court in the US and possibly down the same track as his CFO. If he gets extradited, he's still fighting extradition. So, yeah. Yeah. And, well, that's a topic for another podcast. But I often find that when you get into these corporate scenarios, people with enough money Mm. can delay and fart around for God knows how long, holding up the whole process, putting God knows how many ridiculous reasons forward as to why they can't be extradited and so on. And he'll be one of them. So the the good thing about this, to an extent, and I'd love to see more of it, is that invariably, cases like this, very hard to prove. In Autonomy's case, it was so systematic, it was black and white. But in a lot of cases, most of this stuff never proceeds to a criminal prosecution. Yeah, you're right. It's just... Too hard well, I, th- I think it comes down to if you're trying white-collar crime and actually convicting somebody on, on, on wire fraud, there's a high bar that the prosecution must meet That's um, right. that goes beyond reasonable doubt. The other thing is, is that the initial prosecution in most of those cases mm. is against the entity itself, i.e. autonomy as yeah. a publicly listed company. What mm. you've then got to do is you've got to prove Hmm. that an officer of that business Hmm. with full knowledge... With intent. With intent to... To deceive, deceive, yes. So it's either that or or to conspire to deceive. So And and the other other interesting thing, and again, this is another podcast, we can't cover Hmm. it today, but you think about this. You've got Hmm. a company like Autonomy that is systematically going through this accounting debacle or improprietary, Mm. whatever you want to call it, there must have been people inside autonomy sitting there going, hang on a minute. Yes, the CFO's got sent to prison for it. Yes, Mike Lynch might go. But there must have been other people, divisional CFOs, other people in finance sitting there going, this this can't be right. But nobody, of course, in those scenarios, people don't stand up and blow the whistle. It's the tall poppy syndrome. I think it's hard for people to go against the will of the chief financial officer or the CEO. Oh, yeah. I mean, they, they basically work according to their direction. And people hold those positions, CEO, because ultimately that's where the buck stops. And on and the finance, that's where the buck stops there. So you have to go to whoever's the person who's ultimately accountable. Well, you go to the signature. And I mm. guess that's the thing. In finance, people will sometimes put through a transaction Mm. knowing that it might be dodgy, but as long yep. as their signature isn't on it. But yeah, so so what do you reckon? Do you reckon Mike Lynch is heading for a, a jail? I think so, yes. If he's unsuccessful in fighting this, this extradition, but of course it has been approved. So the UK Home Secretary did approve for, for him to be extradited. I find it hard to see how he can fight against this. And when he gets to the United States, largely because of precedent. 
the um, chief financial officer was um, yeah, has correct. been, and so yeah. by by precedent, and he will he will go before a jury, and it's very likely that the, the charge will be. They wouldn't bring it otherwise. They only bring charges if they they absolutely eighty to ninety percent, if not more, likelihood of a successful conviction. You know? Yeah, and and Mike Lynch wouldn't be fighting extradition if he thought that he could turn up in court and, and you know. <laughs> no, 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 no. If he gets there, it's very likely that um, yeah. he will um, be convicted. Interesting one. It is an interesting one because I think uh, Rob, out of all the M and A deals that we've discussed, and we've talked many disasters, there aren't that many, as you said before, that actually arrive at criminal, you know, convictions. And this is one of them. You just don't see people going to prison with over white collar crime. It just doesn't happen. And the bit that really narks me in all yeah. of this, yeah. again, I'll come back to who we decided to call my mate, <laughs> right? Yeah. He was he was the bloody culprit in the first place. He was the one whose ego got in the way and wanted to acquire autonomy. And he was the one that went through that process and signed the deal with Mike Lynch. And then the board fire him. Well, so he's yeah. being fired. Okay. But he's out of there. And yeah. I, I, I don't know a lot about Meg Whitman other than the fact that she's obviously walked in and she's got to face the fire. I think there's a quote that I think Ronald Reagan said, I'm trying to remember who said it, trust but very. You might believe certain figures or you might believe things about what people say about the claims or yep. financial projections, but the whole point of due diligence is to verify. And you do need to check and go through the process and do it properly. <clears throat> it's not something you can circumvent. And maybe for a future podcast, we can talk about Elizabeth Holmes and that case that's because idea. that's similarly a situation where the investors who did lose are the ones who didn't do due diligence. The ones yeah. that did do due diligence never went ahead and invested. Yeah. This is what M&A is, is about following a process. You, it's not something you can short-circuit. You can't short-circuit DD. You've got to oh. go through the process <sighs> and make sure it's an objective process that stands scrutiny in front of your executives and your... And to use a popular Australian phrase, if they had done proper due diligence, yeah. even Blind Freddy would have been able to see what was going on. Yeah. yeah. You know? Yeah. So, yeah, a litany of errors, a, a whole range of circumstances that mm. conspired on top of each other. Yeah. But at the end of the day, ego, yep. willingness to avoid proper due diligence. If any of those things that have been in, if, if, if the ego hadn't have been there, proper due diligence on a deal like this, you, you're talking about a five to six month period, easy. Well, what, whatever period it takes, it's nonetheless it's, a process you go through and you, you do yeah. it objectively. You don't, you don't, oh, say, oh, we rush it through. Not, not, certainly you check not everything this, off. Not on this size. No, absolutely not. Now, you might be a bit well, more gung-ho with a sort of a smaller deal where you accept that the, the speed is more important and that you are willing to accept the risks associated with that. But this is a massive deal, and it required a, a, a corresponding level of due diligence. The unfortunate thing is even with the smaller deals, you've still got to do your due diligence, right? Yeah. Unless unless you are a very wealthy individual that can afford to throw away the other. No, exactly. So if you're a, right. a, a member of the Waltons family or Betsy DeVos, yeah, then maybe possibly, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter so much. And 100 million here or 100 million there. But this, this deal was enormous and it did require an $11 billion deal. I mean, it's huge. So... What's our 30-second wrap-up on this? 
Good point. Good point, Rob. I would say one, valuation. Always overpaying is the single biggest predictor of a disaster. It was overvalued. Other lesson, deal fever, your friend. He was just desperate. He basically had a high comfort risk. Due diligence, okay? You've got to have strong financial visibility on the cash and the accounting process and revenue yep. recognition. Yep. Yeah. Governance. Yeah. The board has to play a role here. It is. And then I think above all is culture. I mean, two opposing cultures. I, it's like oil and water. I don't know how this is ever going to work. No. I've seen, business, I've seen deals where opposing cultures have come together in some way, but you, you're right. The key mm. bit about this is there was a huge ego at play. Yeah. The board didn't do its job in terms of proper governance, et cetera. Even though there was one person standing up saying, don't do this, oh. they got, they got yeah. railroaded. Yeah. Right? You've got that ego driving a willingness to pay a 60% premium on the market valuation. Mm. And, and then this lack of due diligence mm. means quite, not quite, a very serious accounting practice, yeah. fraud, Let's call it what it is. Yeah, accounting fraud isn't uncovered, right? And and the, that big pile of pooey stuff hit the fan a couple of years later. It did, yes. Look, it's an extraordinary deal. But I tell you what, when it comes to disasters, they don't come much bigger than this one. They don't. No, it's a good one. Why don't we talk about Elizabeth Holmes next time? We do. I think it's a good idea. All right. Because I think there are parallels here, and I think there's some lessons about the Elizabeth Holmes case that will be very well worth exploring from a due diligence perspective. All right. Well, let's make that a date okay. to Good. talk about that next time. Okay. So, yeah, this is another podcast from the dynamic duo of Rob and Toby, <laughs> uh, the dastardly duo. We're going to be back uh, next week with another podcast. As you've just heard, that will be on Elizabeth Holmes. And other than that, it's uh, my duty to say that's it for today and bye for now. <laughs> <laughs>